Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Matthew chapter 28, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 16. Some of the most important words of Jesus anywhere are right here in these verses. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. About 4,000 years ago, there was an elderly shepherd by the name of Magnus, M-A-G-N-E-S. He was herding his sheep in an area of farmland in northern Greece when he realized that the metal parts of his sandals were sticking to to the big rock on which he was standing. And he was trying to move and was having trouble moving. And after some deliberation, he realized that the rock on which he was standing was one that was attracted to whatever metal he might have been wearing. It is the legendary origin of the discovery of magnets. When I was a kid, one of my favorite toys was a magnet. I never could figure it out. In fact, I'm still trying to figure it out. For that reason, out of every 24 hours of every day, I spend 23 of them right in front of our refrigerator trying to figure out how does a magnet stick to a refrigerator? How does that work? I don't get it. Of course, uh, whenever I read uh, scientific uh, articles that are usually use terminology that's way above my head, they tell me that a magnet is made up of iron and and the atoms in that iron are arranged in such a way that they draw themselves to uh, metals, other metals that have uh, iron ingredients. I still don't quite understand that, but I do know that uh, a magnet will stick to a refrigerator, and that's pretty much all I have to remember. I, I remember as a, as a kid in science class, our, our science teacher brought us into uh, an exhibit one time. There was sand. There was a little, a little flat pan, square pan of sand, and she said, now, she handed us a magnet. We didn't know exactly what it was, but it was shaped like a horseshoe, which back then all magnets were shaped like horseshoes. I, I'm, I'm convinced that when Magnus, 4,000 years ago, stepped on that piece of rock, it was in the shape of a horseshoe. Oh, no, man. So anyway, we would take that horseshoe, and she said, now, uh, run it close to the sand without touching it, across the top of the sand. And when we did that, iron from underneath the sand, little pellets of iron came shooting out of the sand and were drawn to that magnet. As I thought about that, I thought that is what I believe Jesus wants every church to be. A magnet that draws not iron, but people from out from among the world. That's what Jesus wants. We're in a uh, series called uh, We Want to Be. And we've talked about several things. 
I'm not going to test you on them, but I, I thought about testing you on them because we need to remember them. We really do. We want to be friendly. We want to be positive. I'm going to preach that sermon again three times sometime between now and Christmas because y'all need that one. We need to be positive. We want to be friendly. We want to be positive. We want to be merciful. We want to be humble. We want to be family. Last week, we want to be cutting edge. And today, I want to talk about we want to be a magnet. We want to be a magnet for people. We don't want to be the type church that repels people, that when they come in, their first impression that they make within five minutes of being here is, this is not the place for me. We want people to be drawn to our church family. We want to be a magnet. And what better text from the scriptures can we use for this idea that Jesus wants us to be a magnet than uh, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Verses 18 through 20 are what theologians and Christians uh, commonly call the Great Commission because it is that passage of scripture among the last words that Jesus said, which, by the way, makes them all the more important. We tend to place more value upon some of the last words people say than on a lot of other words that they say throughout their lives. And these were among Jesus' last words. And in those last words, he compels us to go out into the world and to make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. And in this passage, that this all-important passage, there are four alls, A-L-L-S, that, that we find in here. First of all, Jesus said that, that he has all authority given to him. Second, we're to make disciples of all the nations. And third, we're to teach them to obey all that he commanded us. And fourthly, and most important, he says, and when you do this, I will be with you all the time. Four alls in this powerful passage that we call the Great Commission. I want you to notice four things in this passage that that help us uh, with this idea of, of being a magnet. And the first thing I want you to see is that there was division among the disciples. There was division among the disciples. Verse 17 says that when they, the disciples, saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some worshiped and some doubted. Now, this is an amazing thing. What was it that the ones who doubted were doubting? Uh, they, had, they, they, they knew that Jesus was dead. They knew that he died on the cross. They had seen his, uh, his, his corpse. They had witnessed uh, his body being put into a tomb and sealed. They knew about it. And so they knew he was dead. And yet here they were on Galilee after Jesus had risen. Jesus told them while they're in Jerusalem, go up into Galilee and there I will show myself to you. The disciples go up to Galilee in northern Palestine. And Jesus shows himself to them. Now they know all 11, Judas is dead by this time, but all the the 11 remaining disciples knew that he had been dead, that he had been executed. And yet here he is standing before them. What was there to doubt? And yet some doubted. Maybe it wasn't that they were doubting his reality. Matthew doesn't tell us what it was they doubted. He has said that some worshiped him. And some doubted. I I, I would love to know what it was they doubted. Because they certainly could not have doubted the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. He was standing right there in front of them. There wasn't anything to doubt. So what was it that they were doubting? 
we'll never know, perhaps, this side of heaven. And we may not know then. But I'd love to know what they doubted. But one thing Matthew does tell us is that among those 11 disciples, there was a division among them. Some worshipped him and some doubted. And maybe rather than focusing on the doubt, Matthew wanted us to focus on the fact that even early on that moment, this young nucleus of what would become the New Testament church, <clears throat> excuse me, was divided. Not that they were doubting, but that they were divided. The disciples were divided. Uh, it's hard for me to get past the word doubt there. But I need to get past it and realize something that has been true throughout the history of the Christian church. Jesus' disciples have become more and more and more divided. It's a tragic, a tragic prognosis among the followers of Jesus. I personally have never seen a time in my life of 55 years when churches and denominations within Christianity are more divided than they are today. Perhaps there has been a time. We always tend to think that the times we're in are worse times than ever, that the Lord's going to certainly come back in our time because they're worse than ever, and not, all, not always have they been worse than ever. In fact, in many ways, our times are the best ever to live in. But I still have never seen a time when the church is more divided. The, the, not, not just our church, but the church overall. We're divided over doctrine, what to teach and what not to teach. We're divided over marriage. We're divided over worship styles. We're divided over politics. We're divided over baptism. We're divided over predestination. We're divided over what to do with the Lord's Supper and what it means. We're divided over which day is the proper day to worship. We're divided over chairs versus pews. We're divided over the color of carpets. We're divided over whether, where other people can sit. Now, we're not divided over where we can sit. We're pretty certain about that. It's that we're divided over where other people can sit. Now, we're divided over some very significant things, no doubt, but there are some other things that are just flat foolish that, are, that divide us. Has anybody here ever been to Centerville, Georgia? If you have, raise your hand. If you've been to Centerville, Georgia, few people have. Few people have. Centerville, Georgia has a population of less than 10,000 people. Uh, you, may, you may be interested to know that Centerville, Georgia, with a population of between five and 10,000 people, has a total of 48 Presbyterian churches. Now, that doesn't count churches of other denominations, but Centerville, Georgia, has 48, to date, 48 different Presbyterian churches. And the high number of those churches, of course, has to do with the number of multiple splits that have occurred within those churches during the history of the little town of Centerville, Georgia. In 1899, keep in mind, Palmetto Baptist Church was 18 years old in 1899. In 1899, Centerville, Georgia had one Presbyterian church. It was called Centerville Presbyterian Church. Had about 20 families. 20 families in a Christian church in 1899 was a large church, and it was the largest church in the small town of Centerville, Georgia. But by 1911, that church that had grown to 
uh, almost 150 members had a dispute over where in the service the offering should be taken. Should it be taken before the sermon or should it be taken after the sermon? And the uh, debate got so heated that there was a split that took place and the dissenting congregation left and they formed the Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church. So now in 1915, there are two, uh, 1911, there are two Presbyterian churches. In 1915, another dispute rose among the members of the Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church. I can't make this stuff up. This is actually true. I read it in a bona fide article. The members of Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church got into an argument over whether or not to have flowers in the sanctuary. Part of the folks were for having flowers in the sanctuary. Others were against having flowers in the sanctuary. And as a result, Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church split, and the Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church of Centerville was organized with 25 members. That's 1915. Several more splits took place between the years 1915 and 1929. In 1931, another dispute arose in the 7th Presbyterian Reformed Covenantal Church of Centerville over an issue that no one can remember, and it was not recorded in their minutes, but it was bad enough that the church split in half. Nine people came out of that church to form the 3rd Westminster Trinity Covenant Presbyterian Reformed Church of Centerville, Georgia. Still more splits took place between 1931 and 1975. 1975, when a major split took place within the uh, Presbyterian Covenantal uh, U.S. denomination over the issue of merging with the more liberal uh, PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA. At that time, the 11th Westminster Covenant Presbyterian Church of Centerville voted to remain with PCUS with the merger. Fifteen of the members got mad about that, broke off, and they formed St. John's Presbyterian Church in Centerville. But one week later, St. John's Presbyterian Church split over the choice of the name because several members objected to using the word saint in the name of a reformed Presbyterian church. Since 1975, several more splits have happened in Centerville, Georgia, among the Presbyterian churches, the most recent being a dispute that arose amongst members of the 2nd Street, 1st, 9th Westminster Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church over the issue of the observance of the Lord's Day. The issue in question was whether or not it was acceptable for someone to check their email in church on the Sabbath. I can tell you right now it's not supposed to be done. Those who objected to checking email split off and now have formed, you're not going to believe this, the Presbyterian, totally reformed, covenantal, Westminsterian, subsabbatarian, regulative, credo-communist, amillennial, presuppositional church of Centerville. They like to go by their initials. Paul Davis is a member of that church, and here's what he said. This is a quote. He said, I think that we finally, after all these years, got it right now. He says, at PTRCWSRCCAPCC, that's their church initials, we now have a church with 100% doctrinal purity. We're up to six people on Sundays now, says Paul Davis. I know that numbers are not important, but we're hoping to grow a little more. The disciples were divided. Some worshiped and some doubted, and today... 
some 38,000 Christian denominations after the New Testament church, which did not have a denomination. It was just people of the way. But now we have 38,000 different Christian denominations because we're still trying to work toward 100% purity in each of our congregations. The disciples are still divided. But there's one thing, one thing that should never divide us. There's one thing that I would hope that we will always be in agreement on, and that is this, that Jesus wants us to reach lost people. And so I want you to look secondly at the desire of Jesus, the desire of Jesus, that all people will hear the good news and be saved. Here's a great question. And I think it's a question that that we as Christians ought to be asking ourselves every single day. What does Jesus want more than anything else? What does Jesus want more than anything else? The reason I believe that's a great question is because whatever it is that Jesus wants, we should want. Is there anybody that could possibly disagree with that statement? That whatever Jesus wants is what we should want? And so Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 contained Jesus' last marching orders for his followers. And he told them basically this, I'm paraphrasing, that while they are living their, their busy lives, while they are busy living their lives, they are to be making disciples, disciples, followers of Christ, everywhere we go. That basically is what Jesus was saying. And there are other places in the scriptures where he basically tells us the same thing. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, Peter says, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God wants Everybody, or at least as many people as are willing to, to be saved. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul knew this. He said that God, quote, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, told his disciples who were still in Jerusalem, and uh, he had, he had uh, risen from the dead, but he had not yet ascended to the Father. And he says to them in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, he says, tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued, that is covered up with power, Holy Spirit power from on high. And then when you are, you shall be my witnesses. What is a witness? A witness is a Christian who tells others about Jesus. That's what a witness is in its simplest terms. He says, you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the utmost parts of the world. In other words, you start where you are, but you don't stay there. You spread your witness to the neighboring areas, to areas where you are not, and then all the way around the world. Let your witnessing footprint march around the world, is what Jesus is saying. So can there be any debate over what Jesus' greatest desire was? His desire was that everybody hear the good news and be saved. Now, he could, if he wanted to, because he's God and God can do anything he wants, he could send in UPS mail to every person on the planet, On paper, a plan of salvation that includes a good video of him telling what he's already said on paper in such a way that when people read it and when they view the video, that they can be, that they're compelled to do nothing other than receive Christ. He could do that. 
He could send angels to preach the gospel. He could make people walk through doors that are shut and locked and tell people about Jesus. He could do all of that, and it would be very impressive. But that's not the way he chooses to do it. What he chooses to do is to work through folks like me and you in telling other people about Christ. A good biblical argument could be made that the reason you have acquaintances, whether family, friend, co-workers, uh, school buddies, or whatever, the reason that you and I have those friends is because God wants us to share with those friends, especially those who are unchurched, about the good news of Jesus. Tell me what other reason you might have that would be more important than that, that you have friends and family and neighbors and colleagues and work buddies and school buddies. You and I are put here to be a magnet to the unchurched. Jesus wants all people to be saved. Number three, <clears throat> the directions of Jesus. He says, as you live your life, be making followers of Jesus. His desire must be our desire. And if Jesus' primary objective is to save the lost, then our primary objective must be to reach the lost and bring them to Jesus. I want to show you something that uh, we can't see in our translations. I'm not exactly sure why they don't uh, translate them in such a way that we, can't, that we can see this, but they don't. Verse 19 says this. In the New International Version, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Look at the words go and make in that, in that verse. Therefore go and make. What you and I can't see in the NIV is simply this, that those two verbs are what uh, English teachers call present participle verbs. A present participle verb is a verb that ends usually in ing, and it denotes continuous, nonstop action. And so basically, because these two verbs are present participle verbs, what Jesus is literally saying is this. As you are going, be constantly making disciples. You see, we, we, we have read this for so long as uh, go and make disciples, which that would be powerful. That would be a command. That would be an imperative. Go and make. But in the Greek text, the, the verbs are literally as you are going, meaning as you are living your life, as you are at work, as you are at school, as you are at the restaurant, as you are with your family get togethers, as you are going, living your life, do what? Be constantly making disciples, making followers of Christ. There isn't a place to stop doing that for you and me. It is to be a constant endeavor, making disciples for Christ. And then finally, number four, the declaration of Jesus. This is extremely important. This is not an addendum to be just tacked on. I will be with you wherever you go, making disciples. Verse 20, Jesus makes a promise to us. When we are going and reaching people, his promise is to always be with us. He says, and lo, I am going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. He promises to be with us. When I am called upon to do something that I'm not comfortable doing, but that I know I need to do, 
I'm always encouraged when the person who is teaching me to do that that I'm uncomfortable doing but that I need to do, when that person says, all right, Jimmy, you need to do this, you need to do it now, but I'm going to go with you to help you do it. I will be with you. You know what that does? That adds to my confidence level. And what Jesus is saying here is, he says, look, as you are living your life, I want you to be making disciples, but you will not be going alone. I will be going with you. I want to leave you with this, ladies and gentlemen. Do you and I really believe what we say we believe about Christianity? Do we really believe that Jesus died on a cross for us and that is our way of salvation? Do we really believe that he rose from the dead? Do we really believe that he's the way to salvation? Do we believe that the Bible is true when it quotes Jesus saying, as you are living your life, be making disciples? Do we really believe what the Bible says about the afterlife, about people who know Christ will go to heaven when they die? Do we really believe it? Because if we really believe it, there'd be people here every week that we literally beg to be here. I'm not going to doubt that you believe those things. I hope that you won't doubt that I believe those things, but I will leave this for you and me to think about. Do our actions back up our belief? I'm looking in this congregation today, and I realize this is a holiday weekend. It's Columbus Day. And I know that in our day, when people have a long weekend, they go. I don't blame them. I would go too. But even on a holiday weekend, there is no reason why this place shouldn't be full. And the only thing I can gather is that the reason that it's not full is that we didn't wake up this morning thinking about what we really believe. Do we really believe what we say we believe? We want to be a magnet that draws people to Christ through this church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. You said yourself that I, if I be raised up, will draw all men to myself. And you were raised up on a cross, and you were executed, and you were placed in a tomb, and on Resurrection Sunday, you rose up from the dead, and 40 days later, you rose back up to heaven, ascended to heaven. And that is, that is, those things are the anchors of our belief. But Lord, help us to show our belief by truly being a magnet, by drawing people here. And we realize, Lord, that not everybody's going to come. Not everybody will agree to the invitation or or respond favorably. But that does not excuse us from the responsibility of inviting people, of talking to people, of sharing the good news. People who don't share the good news, Lord, we have to question 
ourselves if, if we really believe the good news. Because if we really believe the good news, it's what we say it is. We're going to be inviting people everywhere we turn. As you are going, be constantly making followers of Jesus. Help us to be magnets. In Jesus' name, amen.